One of the basic reasons is I discovered how many women feel so ashamed of being ill. So many women seem to attribute their illness, whatever it is, to stress. And they see their stress as a major, as a sort of a public manifestation of their inability to manage their lives. They're embarrassed, so they hesitate to get a second opinion. They don't want anybody basically to know that they're ill. I mean, that's one reason. The other reason is we're taught to play nice and to make friends. We don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. We don't want to be rude. So we don't do it. And it's a major, major mistake. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, a climate activist and social activist who is passionate about storytelling. My goal with this podcast is to invite you to care a little more so we can all build a better world together, build a better society, and even regenerate Earth. Today, we're going to explore how women, typically the medical gatekeepers for their families, inadvertently undermine their own care. They hesitate to call the doctor when they don't feel well, and they worry that their doctor visit will take time away from their families or work. They may hesitate to ask doctors the necessary questions and often don't make the most compliant of patients. To unpack this issue, I'm joined by Susan Salinger. She is the author and researcher behind Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. It will be released in April 2022, and I have my pre-pressed copy here that I've just had the pleasure of spending about a week with. So, Susan, without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I appreciate it. Well, I have to say, I do understand this journey a little bit from a personal level because I am a woman. I do have two boys and a husband, and I do tend to manage their health care. I'm the one that takes them to their doctor's appointments. I'm the one who reminds my husband when it's time for him to get a physical. So I felt this book. I also understand that your personal story, when you didn't ask for a second opinion, even when your gut told you that you should, I mean, that really resonated with me. I'd love for you to just start by telling us that story. Why did you choose to go under the knife even when you believed you did not need to? Well, just a quick backstory, which is I had been on some medication and then I tried some new medication and had some common side effects from it. And the doctor said, oh my goodness, we better do some tests and see what's going on. And so we did the tests and they were normal. And then he said, well, you need exploratory surgery. And I was sure it was the new medication. It was just too much of a coincidence not to be, but I got frightened. And before I knew it, there I was lying on a gurney, you know, hooked up to tubes and orderlies pushing me into this very cold surgery room. And I had the surgery, everything was fine. I went back to the old medication and that was that, the symptoms stopped. I am and was so ashamed of myself I could have gotten a second opinion. You're absolutely right. Whatever it was, I had more than enough time to think it through, gain some perspective. I wasn't going to die in the next 24 hours, but I really just didn't listen to myself. And that was not sort of, that was the impetus for writing the book. So when you get into the second chapter of your book, 
You aptly titled that chapter, Nice Girls Finish Last. <laughs> so in my intro, I shared a little bit about that perspective, right? That you're afraid of putting your doctor out almost. Like, why are you in that position in the first place? Like, what is it that's making us choose to put our health before even the opinion of the doctor, like sacrificing our health in a way for the opinion of somebody who we see once a year in right. some cases. Right. No, I think that there's a couple of reasons. One of the basic reasons is I discovered how many women feel so ashamed of being ill. So many women seem to attribute their illness, whatever it is, to stress. And they see their stress as a major, as a sort of a public manifestation of their inability to manage their lives. They're embarrassed, so they hesitate to get a second opinion. They don't want anybody basically to know that they're ill. I mean, that's one reason. The other reason is we're taught to play nice and to make friends. We don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. We don't want to be rude. So we don't do it. And it's a major, major mistake. I think what a lot of us don't realize, I certainly didn't until I did the research, is how tricky an accurate diagnosis can be. And that has nothing to do with the competence of the doctor. It's just that there's maybe 20 to 30,000 different diseases out there, many of whose symptoms mimic one another. So for the doctor, it's like looking at a, for a needle in a haystack. Well, they have to respond. They have to figure out what it is that is the actual symptom that they should be treating, which are potentially just kind of noise to the main issue. And I think as we continue to live our lives, especially when we're eating a bunch of processed foods and junk food that isn't health supportive, I mean, that's one of the things I think that women might be ashamed of when they're going to the doctor's office. Like they don't want to tell them, oh, well, I, yeah, I ate half my kid's sandwich and it was just <laughs> peanut butter and jelly, or I had that bag of chips as opposed to making something wholesome, or yeah, I drank a little bit too much wine consistently. And now I'm starting to see weight gain from that or whatever. And that's impacting my health in these ways. I don't want to tell my doctor because this is something I covet in a way, like having mommy time or socializing with friends or after the kids are in bed, maybe having an unhealthy habit. And we don't necessarily want to share that in, I think, this really transparent way, because it's just hard to admit that your life isn't perfect, I think. <laughs> yeah. You think, yeah, for sure. I think, though, another reason is about second opinions that we have to get there. We may not have the resources, either financial or transportation. We may not have child care. So it's not just a question of picking up the phone, making an appointment and going over. It kind of depends who you are, where you are and what your circumstances are. Well, I'll give you a clear example from my own life. You know, I made appointments for all my own kids and then my appointment for an OBGYN every three years, I'm supposed to get screened for what is it? They do a pap now every three years. And I completely missed the appointment. I got a notice <laughs> in the mail. Like that's how far I like a week or so. And I got a notice in the mail, like you missed this important screening, you should really go in and do this. And the fact that I had to be prodded in that way, I mean, I felt like I was getting a past due notice from like some <laughs> bill I didn't pay. <laughs> I wish I could say you were atypical, but I don't think you are, unfortunately. No, I've typically been religious about getting my annual, but because of the fact that they shifted this every three years, it's almost like when it comes to that particular pap screening or whatever, I just look at it as, oh, well, you know, I guess if it can wait three years, like what's it this time? It just kind of gets that feeling that it doesn't feel quite as essential. I just think it's so important to take care of ourselves. In fact, at the back of my book, 
there's a resource list and it gives you all of the tests that you should try to have if you possibly can. And I think that insurance covers most of them. But just back to second opinions, just for a second, there was a really interesting study done of about under 300 patients, all of whom had a diagnosis, whatever it was. And they all went for, I think it was to the Mayo Clinic actually, but I'm not sure. They all went for a second opinion and 86% had either a completely different diagnosis or a refined diagnosis with more nuances. So, I mean, 86%, that is a hell of a lot. So help me understand this. 86% aren't getting their second opinion? No, that I can't say, although a lot of us don't. What the study revealed was that of those patients that did, of the 300 patients or whatever it was that did, 86% of them had a different diagnosis than when they went in. Wow. Okay. I don't know why I was hearing that differently, but clarification, I think, is important in these sorts of cases, too, because like when we get to talking about statistics, I think some people's eyes just glaze over. Like, oh, no, somebody <laughs> mentioned a number. What does this mean now? Do I have to take notes? Am I going right, to be tested on right. this later? Yeah. So let's talk a moment just about that perspective of having to go through the process of getting a second opinion. Now, I think sometimes people don't do this because they think, oh, my doctor is the authority. They must know what's best for me. I'm following their guidance. And that's essentially what happened in your case, right? So what lens would you ask this person to adopt to help them be an advocate for their own health and really seek that second opinion? I like that question. I think you have to look through the lens of this. Your diagnosis and your treatment is truly a collaboration between you and your doctor. And your doctor needs some backup. I mean, I always think that four eyes or ears are better than two. And you have to remember, again, he's looking for a needle in a haystack. And particularly if your symptoms are vague ones, like fatigue, loss of appetite, losing weight, gaining weight. I mean, those symptoms fit so many diseases, it's truly almost impossible. And in some ways, it's not even fair to expect the doctor to get it right on his first go round. You know, if you go in with pain in your leg and your leg is broken, it's obvious. But for most of us, it's not that simple. So I think the lens that women should choose, and for that matter, men, it's a collaboration. And I think that maybe will change women's attitudes, I hope. I agree. You know, a couple of the things that you mention in your book have to do with certain diagnoses, like if somebody has fibromyalgia, as a for example, often the doctor might even make them feel that way that, oh, well, perhaps this issue is psychological and you need to seek some other support. So how would you ask or advise somebody to navigate that sort of situation when they have some sort of diagnosis that's a little bit more difficult to pin down? That's also a good question. And that is really tricky because it can take almost five years, sometimes seven years for people with chronic diseases, whether it's fibromyalgia or whatever, to get a diagnosis. And there's been a several books about how different women have gone from travel from doctor to doctor to doctor. And I think that all I can say is you have to stand your ground. If you don't think it's psychological, of course, you're under stress because you're in pain. But if you know that just the pain that's causing you stress, you have to just absolutely get a second opinion, a third opinion, and keep going until you finally find the most accurate diagnosis. Now, I think a big part of the thing that might be holding people back has to do with finances. And in some cases, you're paying a copay. And depending on your insurance, that copay might be quite large, or you might have a minimum expense that you have to reach in order to get to that space. So what kind of recourse do individuals have if they're struggling in that way? Yeah, you know what? I don't know. 
I think that it depends on your insurance. You know, some people don't have the transportation or the time to go to all those appointments that I just described. And I can understand that. But if you're not satisfied with your original diagnosis, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel comfortable, don't do what I did. I mean, listen to your gut. (laughs) Do as I say, not as I do. Well, I appreciate the I don't know, because there are a lot of questions I have that I don't know the answer to either. And I continue to seek. I will give you another for instance. In my case, I had a couple of spots appear on my temples. And they could just be age spots or call them what you will, keratosis, some sort. I'm forgetting what the actual technical term is. But I saw them erupt on my face in July after I'd gone through a slight medication change. And so I thought it could have been related to that because often what miasma or just discoloration of the skin can be a result of a number of different things, can be hormonal. I'm peri, pre-menopausal somewhere in there because of my age, like I'm just middle of that zone where it could be so many different things. And so what did I do? I immediately just made an appointment. I went to the doctor. Now, the way they were running things because we're in the midst of COVID is a little strange. Like I just basically saw some texts that were all gloved up and everything and with a mask and shield and everything. And they took high-tech photos using an iPhone of all things of my face, like with some attachment on it to magnify and on the two spots, sent it over to dermatology. And then I had a diagnosis of nonspecific keratosis or something like that. So they gave me a cream that I would have to apply to my face for a couple of weeks and then just essentially say, okay, then after that, if they don't disappear, then we'll check in with you again, basically. Nobody called me back. I had to sit there and kind of hound Like, hey, I'm done with the diagnosis. And it wasn't until I took my four-year-old in for a doctor's appointment and just mentioned my doctor in person, hey, nobody's getting back to me. This is what happened. I did finish the cream, but the spots aren't gone. So probably need a follow-up there. But it's just like, I think the way our systems are, sometimes a person in that situation falls through the cracks too, if they're not taking it really seriously and making the time to get back out there. And in my case, what? I'm busy. I've got my two kids. I work. I podcast. There's a lot of balls that I'm juggling. And so I'm exactly the person that you wrote this book for. And so, I mean, I just feel like there is a dramatic social impact to not putting our health first. If we think about every time you fly on a plane, what do they say? You have to put your mask on first before you assist the person next to you. And I think I'm just full transparency, haven't been putting my physical health first, need to start making some changes to do that again. And this is something I come back to probably numerous times over my life, like, okay, maybe need to eat less of these carbohydrates, refined foods and get more to the whole foods again and, and adjust, adjust so that my health is at its best, so that my energy level is at its best. And so that if I do have a precancerous lesion, I'm going to heal pretty quick after I get that treatment, as opposed to just being in a spot where I'm going to struggle through the treatment and then struggle through recovery and, and, and. Like I need to set myself up for health and I need to take that as a responsibility on my own. I think that's really important what you're saying. And I actually heard two things. The first is that there are some definite structural issues in our medical system that are make it a lot more difficult for women than it is for men, although we're all up against it. I mean, there's particularly during COVID, there's no question. But I also think that we have to remember that self-care really equals health care, because if you don't take care of yourself, you do let your health go. And then you can't take care of your family in the way that you want to. And I think that that's an important thing to remember. I also think that, again, if you blame yourself, 
if you become your own victim, it makes it much more difficult to recover. That's right. Well, and if I don't get that screening, if I don't get these checked by dermatology, which I'm going to do now, but if I don't have that occur, then what? I could leave my kids without a parent if I don't take this seriously. Like that's the worst case scenario. And so not to be like a Cassandra about it, right? But seriously. No, it's funny. I'm smiling because I have a spot on my face that hasn't gone away. And I keep watching it and nothing changes. It doesn't grow. It doesn't shrink. It does nothing. So I too am going to the dermatologist. But I think one of the things that I really object to in a diagnosis is when they say, well, let's watch and wait. Sometimes you want to be conservative. You want to be more cautious than not. But I don't really want to watch and wait to see if what happened. I know this isn't right. So I just as soon have it removed unless they think I'm wrong. I don't want to tell the doctor what treatment I need. But on the other hand, I don't necessarily want it to develop into something that's a full bone serious disease. And my husband had melanoma for a while, just at one couple of different points. And I don't want that to happen. You know, it's scary. Right. Well, in my case, I now know that that topical cream that they asked me to put on for a couple of weeks was a mild chemotherapeutic agent. So it made me feel completely crummy for the period of putting it on for a couple of weeks and also the month that followed and nothing changed. So either not what you were thinking it was and therefore not treatable in that way or insufficient treatment. And I didn't really know another way. I'm just thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to follow my doctor's recommendations because I don't want to take a chance with this. And so now at least I'm going to get in front of an actual dermatologist as opposed to a tech just taking a photo with an iPhone, which I'm sorry, but that seems like a little low tech to me. <laughs> yeah, that's to me too. Just a tad, just a tad. And it can be a dangerous problem. I mean, my husband just thought his foot was dirty. He kept scrubbing it, you know, and he had this spot on it. We didn't see a tech. We did see a dermatologist and I would have been uncomfortable if we hadn't. So I know just what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I lost my grandmother, my Nida May. I have the same middle name as she. I lost her to melanoma when I was nine years old. And so, you know, it's like one of those things that, again, I take pretty seriously. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Now, I think that another issue that we're kind of touching on a little bit has to do with women's health care versus men's health care. And the things that come up for me, particularly because I have a background in nutrition and I've done a lot in the space of heart health, is how heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women, but we really only talk about it with regard to men. And so women don't necessarily know how to identify the signs of a heart attack or even the things that are leading up to a heart attack. If they're not getting screened regularly, if they're not taking their doctor's perspective on those things, if they're not getting blood work done, they don't necessarily know that there's a problem or really what it would take to identify that particular health issue until it's too late. So I wonder what your thoughts are specific to that. And then I'd like to talk about how we medicate men versus women. Aha, I would do. <laughs> My thoughts on the heart attack, I'll tell you a study because it actually frightened me. There was a study done with a bunch of internists. There was a fictitious male patient and a fictitious female patient. And both patients, they were fictitious. That The doctors were given a script and both patients had exactly the same cardiac symptoms and exactly the same cardiac risks. And when the first script had absolutely no mention of stress whatsoever, the, both the man patient and the woman patient received equal treatments. They were all told to go for a cardiac workup. As soon as the female patient, her script said that she was under stress. 
And when that script was evaluated, only 15% of the women were told to go for a cardiac workup. So I think that the minute doctors see stress or women patients say they're under stress, it can skew the diagnosis. And I think that that's a very dangerous precedent. I have two daughters, both of whom are older, and I've told them just from my research that if you think you're having a heart attack and they tell you that it's stress, or if you're told it's stress, or if you're told it's a stomach ache, insist on an EKG. You must get an electrocardiogram before you leave the hospital, as, you know, if you go to emergency. And I think that that's very important. I think even in 2022, as sophisticated medically as most of us are, that heart attack symptoms are still misinterpreted in women. And I don't know quite why that is, frankly, because it's just as common in women as it's not an unusual occurrence. Well, and the social impact of that, let's get back to that, is that often women experience heart attacks to the point where they may have been having miniature heart attacks for days on end. By the time that they get to the doctor, they need something like a triple or quadruple bypass because they've so damaged their heart and they didn't even really know it was happening. So this happened specifically in my circle. I had a nanny and she had texted me in the middle of my workday. I work from home. I was nursing. So she would text me like, hey, someone's time to feed baby type thing now and then. And a text came through. That's what I expected. I picked it up and she said, I'm really not feeling well. Come upstairs as soon as you can. I was in the middle of a meeting. So I just said, okay, I'm sorry. This never happens. I need to go. Got off the call, went upstairs. And she said, well, I'm nauseous. And I've had a headache off and on for a few days now. And I just said, okay, but you never call in sick. And we can talk about that too, the fact that women often work when they are not feeling good. But she never called in sick. She was always there, very reliable, like everything you would want in somebody that's going to be taking care of your children and there to support you every day, but to her own detriment in this case. And I just looked at her and I said, we're going to the hospital right now. We're getting in the car. Oh, but what are we going to do with the baby? I don't want to bring them to the hospital. You know, that's where all these sick people are. Again, putting him first, putting my child first. And I said, we are getting in the car right now. So I get her in the car thinking, okay, call her husband. He's going to meet us there. Like, this is the whole real story, right? I didn't want to put her, call 911, wait for a van to come show up and pick her up and take her to the hospital. I was identifying already the signs of heart attack. And the fact that she said that she'd been experiencing these symptoms off and on for a few days, like I was just like, we're getting to the hospital now. She ended up, you know, having to vomit in the bucket that I brought in the car with us because she was so sick. We get to the ER and I'm just like, somebody needs to see her right now. I'm fairly certain she's having a heart attack. Here's her symptoms. She says that she's been experiencing these symptoms for a couple of days now. Get her in. And they just looked at her and they're like, okay, we're getting her in. Got her on an EKG. Turned out that she had been having heart attack over the course of probably as much as a week and had to end up getting a triple quadruple bypass, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but it meant that she had to retire from being my nanny. But, you know, we were able to ensure that she could go on and living a relatively healthy life for the next few years. Yeah. Well, it's possible. I mean, she might have been okay, but if she'd waited much longer, probably not. Well, you know, I had an experience which I didn't realize. I had the stomach flu. I always get the stomach flu. I don't know why I'm vulnerable to it. And one night, in fact, just in the last year, I, was, I started to perspire and I felt clammy. And I did just what I'm not supposed to do. I thought, well, I'm going to watch and wait. Either I'll get better in 24 hours or I won't. 
And then I was researching the chapter on hearts and second opinions and all. And apparently you only have about four hours before you do real damage to your heart muscle. I mean, I could have died. I could have killed myself. I didn't want to wake my husband. I didn't want to upset my daughters and have everybody rush to the hospital. So I did, like I always say, do as I say, not what I do. I was taking care of them instead of myself. Well, and it's not like this is exclusive to women either. I mean, my own husband, when I was pregnant with our first child, thought he had food poisoning. His stomach was really hurting for like a couple of days. And I was like, this isn't going away. You need to go be seen. And so as I was going to my OB appointment, he went just across the parking lot to another building. It turned out he had an acute appendicitis. It was probably hours from bursting if he hadn't gone in. So I had to be seen right away, got the surgery, everything was okay. And so I think we need to learn to identify and listen to ourselves. Like If you have food poisoning, it shouldn't last more than 10 hours. And if the pain continues, there's something else going on. You might need to see a doctor. And that's true if, as your nanny was, if you're nauseous for a week or have headaches for a week, it shouldn't continue like that. I mean, if a couple of Tylenol or aspirin doesn't cure it, do something. Right. So if we think about it, in women, like you often don't have the same symptoms as men. It's not your arm going numb and pain in your chest. It's nausea and headaches, and that's what it can look like. It's also incidentally depression. If you find yourself particularly depressed and you don't have a reason for it, that can be a symptom of a heart issue as well. I didn't realize that again until I did my research, but that was interesting. The fatigue. I'm watching you on the screen share and we see tomes of journals behind you, <laughs> blue and red and white. It's very patriotic. So Right, right. Of course, that wasn't my goal, but yes. <laughs> no, but I'm just curious to see, like, what was your journey to writing this book? Because it does have some very practical guidance in it for women throughout their courses of lives, the sorts of issues that they tend to encounter more from a health perspective. And some basic common sense kind of guidance about how they might approach their health care. So how did this journey happen? Well, after I had my own surgery, I thought to myself, I can't be the only idiot in the room. There must have been other women that have made medical decisions that they too later regretted. So I found some women, I interviewed a bunch of them. And all of them, one time or another, had done just more or less what I did, not necessarily surgery, but they'd gone along with their doctor, even though it went against their better judgment. And so then I thought, well, I better do some research and see, is this typical or is it just the particular women I interviewed? You know, that can happen. So I went and did a lot of research, subscribed to a lot of journals, as you can see. And there is a ton of literature that says women don't take care of themselves. We put our families first. We put ourselves last. I mean, it was very interesting. And shame is really one of the primary reasons besides taking care of our families that we do that. We're embarrassed. We think we can't manage our lives. And illness is random. And I think we all forget that. But so the journals here back up what I extrapolated from and learned from all the women that I interviewed. So you just said illness is random. I want to talk for a moment about the fact that there's this common perception, like there's karma out there, even from a health perspective that, I don't know, you might have done something to deserve the health cards that you were dealt. So I'd like to just hear from your perspective, what this really means, and why you say illness is random specifically. 
Well, and I'm going to correct myself. I should have said illness can be random and illness is often random. Certainly, if you drink too much and you end up with liver problems or you smoke a lot and you end up with lung cancer, that's not a shock. But on the other hand, what I mean by random is there's a lot of people that smoke and don't get lung cancer. And there's a lot of people that get lung cancer who have never smoked. It just depends. I'll tell you about my father-in-law who lived a very healthy life until died at about 84 or 85. He ate nothing but red meat, smoked cigars for most of his life, never exercised, hated vegetables, wouldn't look at a carrot. And as I said, lived to be a healthy 84, 85, whatever he was. I, on the other hand, I mean, I exercise three or four times a week. I have a very disciplined diet. My blood pressure is higher than his ever was. So sometimes it's just the luck of the draws, genetics. You can't say, I did this, so therefore, if I don't do this again, I won't be sick. And I think we all want to find the reason that we're ill. It gives us a sense of control. But I think it's a false sense of control because we really can't control it. In answer to the stress issue, I think there's a lot of women who are stressed and who get sick. There's a lot of women who are stressed and don't get sick. There's a lot of women who aren't stressed and get sick anyway, or they're stressed less. I mean, I just don't know that you can say, well, it's because of this or because of that. If I'd only napped more, I wouldn't have gotten sick, that kind of thing. Well, to speak to that, the science behind it is actually quite clear too. So If you've taken a genetic test from 23andMe and take some of their health screening questions, they'll actually reveal some of what your genes tell you about your health, right? And so I, for instance, found out that I'm of a particular genotype that for some reason is associated with less fear of heights. Well, I'm not afraid of heights at all. And so, yeah, I know, really interesting stuff. So even attached to behavioral things. They've also identified if you have the APOE4 genotype and more than one representation of it, you're going to be much more likely to develop cancers. And so early on when geneticists were kind of unveiling all this really incredible research, they were really battling the ethics of sharing with people what their genotypes were, how that the specific genome that you have impacts the likelihood of your health to remain constant And also the fact that there could be an ethical quandary when it comes to insurance and medical insurance. This is a good deal of the part of the reason, rather, that many people choose not to get their genetic test done. They're fearful that eventually it could be used against them, right? Yes, it is. It was just in the paper. That whole article was on what people don't want their insurance companies or themselves to know. Right. Well, because if you know it and then you share it with your medical care provider like, oh, well, I was just looking on 23andMe and it turns out I have a higher likelihood of developing Alzheimer's and early onset. So I want to talk to you about that. Does that now become part of your medical record? Is that going to somehow impact your healthcare long-term? What happens if we suddenly go to a space where this is considered almost a pre-existing health condition because you are predisposed to have this certain trajectory with regard to your health. It's a scary thing. Very scary thing. Yeah. And I think that's, again, one of the structural issues that prevents people from finding out as much as they can about themselves because it can be used against them. And I mean, and that's a viable conclusion. Well, it's a possibility because you never know what's going to change with regard to the law, right? So right now, what's true doesn't need to remain true in 10 years or 20 years. Laws can change 
And so we'll see. But ultimately, I think having all of those tools in your tool shed is a very good thing. Because if you learn that you're predisposed to something, you can take your health into your own hands, you can say, okay, well, I need to make these these life choices that are going to support my health long term. I need to know that I'm going to have higher likelihood of developing heart disease. So it's important that I get all my omega-3s and maybe consider taking a CoQ10 supplement and consider dietary and lifestyle changes that will support heart health. I mean, these things might be best for us anyways, but sometimes you just need a catalyst or a little push or a little bit more knowledge. That's true. That's a good point. And don't leave out the brain-gut relationship that so much of what we eat affects our moods and our health, of course. I mean, it's fascinating new research, just fascinating. Yeah, well, one of my favorite quotes from an Italian researcher who studies fats, and I'm forgetting his name, but he said, mind your liver, because what they're finding as they do more and more research is that there's a direct connection between Alzheimer's and liver health. And so people who don't take good care of their livers, who overconsume alcohol, you get kind of a hardened liver, cirrhosis of the liver, and then it's less capable of regenerating and essentially the filter for your blood, right? And so it's not necessarily that they're finding a direct connection between the two, but the correlation is so strong that they know that liver health and brain health are tied, that there's some things that they're yet to fully comprehend about how they're tied. And so ensuring that you mind your liver, will be better for your long-term mental health. We should say mind your health, but as a subset, mind your liver, right? Right. Put it in the reverse way. Mind your liver, mind your brain, mind your health. Great. Now, before we get to our final set of questions, I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about the fact that women end up more strongly medicated than men, generally speaking. I actually found this to be surprising. I thought that men would be more likely to have more medications than women because in my mind, I think men are like, okay, quick fix, patch it. Because like my husband in particular, he's an engineer. He's always trying to like solve everything, right? Whereas women in my life tend to want to discuss things or think them through a little bit more and not necessarily move right to the solution necessarily. So I was just curious what your perspective was on that. Like, where did you find the research? What does it say about our behavior? I'd have to look. I don't remember where I found the research. But women go to the doctor more than men. We take our kids, our elderly relatives, parents, whatever. And the more times you go to the doctor, the more medications you get. I mean, I think there's some legitimate reasons. We have more chronic diseases. And so we need more medication for relief. We have more anxiety and depression. So we need more medication for relief. I mean, et cetera. But I think what I found particularly interesting was that although we're prescribed more medication than men, we don't follow through. There's a real compliance problem with people. I mean, men and women don't necessarily do what their doctors suggest, but women are less likely to comply than men are because again, we're taking care of our family. We're afraid of side effects, which is what happened to me. You don't want to be knocked out of the water because of a common side effect. So that I think, again, that it was very surprising to me because we're such good stewards of our health on the one hand. And yet, on the other hand, we just don't comply with the treatment that we've been prescribed. And one of the, I guess it was Everett Koop, I think, that said something about medicines don't do any good in people that don't take them. And I think that that's something we all need to remember. Well, I find myself wondering sometimes if we get overprescribed, 
I want to solve this health problem for you. Here you go. Here's a pill. When that's not necessarily the patch that we necessarily need. Well, and I think that another problem that is also a structural problem, New Zealand and the United States are the only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise their medications directly to consumers. And it's very, very, very successful. I think it's something like 40% of people that see an ad, men and women, that see an ad on, for a medication on television will phone their doctor the next morning to ask about it or request it or whatever. And I mean, that's terrible. We're prescribing medications for ourselves without perhaps the necessary pharmaceutical or chemical background to know what we're asking for. I just think that this advertising is very, very, very serious. And medications that are advertised sell nine times more than medications that aren't. So it's very tempting for the pharmaceutical companies to advertise a particular drug, and they spend millions, if not billions, doing it. Their advertising budgets increase annually. Well, that's because they're making shit. Yes. Yes, they are. And I was going to say that, and I thought, whoops, you better not. (laughs) I mean, they have more money to spend because they're making more money, and they just keep ratcheting it up. So I think of a couple of specific ads that I've heard in the past couple of years, and I don't want to name a specific drug or a specific drug company because I'm a little scared of getting sued for something and saying it wrong, right? Like, because I'm going from memory here. But there was an ad that I saw where they were basically giving a drug for rheumatoid arthritis and saying in the end, side effects may include, and among the list of side effects that it could include were leukemia, which is cancer. And so, I mean, it's like, let's think some of these things through a little bit more. Some of the drugs that you may be prescribed can actually create more problems than they solve. And one of the biggest drugs out there, one of the most commonly prescribed drugs is a set of drugs to help you sleep. And the reality is if you're not sleeping, there are typically other underlying reasons that you're not sleeping that can be addressed through diet and lifestyle as opposed to taking a pill. And the moment that we start to go over that edge and say, okay, well, I'm going to take this pill to sleep. The quality of sleep may not be good. It's a drugged sleep. You wake up groggy. You may not feel as clear throughout your day because it's not the same kind of quality sleep. And then now you're over caffeinating and suddenly now you're starting to feel anxious and now you get another pill for anxiety and this is impacting your mental health. And now you need another pill for your mental health or depression. And so there's like a cascading set of events that occur from the first drug being prescribed, which you may not have needed in the first place if you'd made a few diet and lifestyle changes. And I'm not trying to preach here, but I just think these things are common sense. Like we know them in our bones in many cases. And it's really tough for people, I think, to go against the doctor recommendation. Oh, well, you're having trouble sleeping. Let me make a prescription for Senesta or whatever. And you say, oh, okay, well, I'll do that. You do that. You get a cascade of other effects from it that you could have eliminated by simply not taking that drug in the first place. Well, two things. I want to go back to what you said about the side effects of leukemia, because that almost, I mean, sort of happened to me. I have an arthritic thumb and I mean, it hurts. So I went to that, but I didn't know it was arthritis. So I went to the doctor and she said it's arthritis and she gave me this medication. And fortunately, because of all my research, I looked it up. Well, I'm taking Lexapro for depression. And so one of the side effects of this particular drug with Lexapro is a brain bleed. Now, would you rather have a sore thumb or a brain bleed? I mean, it was an easy decision. 
But the other thing I wanted to say too is that Americans take approximately four prescriptions. Each American takes rough an average of about four prescriptions every day. That's a lot. All of these drug ads that are advertised towards consumer are mostly aimed towards women because I think we make like 80% of all healthcare purchasing decisions. So if you notice your drug ads, the protagonist is frequently a woman, frequently a woman with a child because we were caretakers and they found that mothers or women respond to those ads even more. So, I mean, it's truly, pharmaceuticals are a business and you really have to be careful what you do. And again, research what you take. I mean, imagine I could have had a brain bleed because my right thumb is arthritic. I mean, really? You know? well, because your doctor doesn't necessarily understand all of the conflicting side effects. They're not a pharmacist. And even a pharmacist, unless they're looking at the two side by side, isn't going to know to tell you that when they do the consult, when you're picking up your prescription for the first time, they say, okay, well, here's the list of side effects. This is how you take this drug. This is when don't have it with milk. If you experience X, Y, or Z, you should contact your doctor. I mean, that's the basics, right? But they aren't going to know that you're on Lexapro or something else. And so I just think it's so critical that people look at these things seriously, that they do investigate for themselves how drugs can interact. Because if they don't do that, and their doctor hasn't taken the extra care, and their pharmacist didn't know, then the next thing, you're going to be in some sort of a health collapse that could have been avoidable in the first place. And of course, this isn't a health podcast, but like, we need to be serious about advocating for our health. I think that's the entire point that we've been making this entire episode. That's the entire point you're making with Sidelined. Be an advocate for your own health and make sure that you're not kind of just taking these recommendations willy-nilly and not considering your space in managing your own health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. And I was thinking, I rarely stay for the pharmaceutical consultations. I just grab my drug and get out of there, which is wrong. I mean, I'm absolutely wrong. But I do read the inserts. I always do that. So I know what I'm getting into. Yeah, that's when I like for the example with the cream I had to put on my face, I read the inserts. And that's when I found out what it was being prescribed was a chemotherapeutic agent. And so I had an expectation like, okay, first day, I probably won't notice second day, I might not either. And that was exactly as it was like by the third day, I felt like crap. And that's the way these things are. And at least if you're walking in with eyes wide open, you understand what to expect. You understand what the treatment is. You have an open conversation with your doctor. You share transparently what your experience is. And if there's something that comes up that shouldn't be there, then they can address it with you. And so it's just, we need to be a little bit more transparent about ourselves with our doctors. I think that's one of the key points. We need to advocate for ourselves and put ourselves ahead of the line when it comes to the kids and such. Because I think if we put ourselves at the front, we'll get it done. Well, and I think it's important to remember that a lot of the drugs, for example, are tested on men. So women do have more side effects. We're smaller, we weigh less. Not all of them, but a lot of them are tested on the male body. So when they're prescribed to women, this, the effects are different than perhaps the researchers anticipated. Well, and it even varies by race and ethnicity too. So yeah, I mean, there are different ways that health concerns present in different cultures of the world. Like if you have Asian descent versus European, you might respond to that medication differently. One of the things that we actually covered in an earlier episode of Care More Be Better with Godfrey Coker. He is an African-American male and he works in that side of the world, working with genetics and disease and things like that. 
And he stated plainly that African-American people respond differently to a lot of the medications and are underrepresented in the clinical trials. So because they're underrepresented in the clinical trials, the side effects that they see aren't necessarily cataloged the same way. And that means that the drugs don't work as well on that population. And so these are systemic problems that we need to work through. It's awareness is the first step, right? Absolutely. Awareness is critical. If you're aware, you have some control to do something about it. You need to recognize and learn to deal with the hurdles that you're going to have to jump because of the systemic issues. Exactly. Start with being your own advocate. You got it. So I will recommend that everybody pick up this book. I know it's coming out in April. And so this episode will likely air right around the time that the book is published. This will be produced as both a video on YouTube and possibly also offered on Facebook, also as an audio file wherever people listen to podcasts. So I wondered if you had any closing words or if there was a question I asked that I haven't already, you could ask and answer it. I will. There was one question that I get every single time whenever I discuss my book, and that is, should I go to a male doctor or a female doctor? I find that question surprising. And I have to say, I actually didn't because it seems so tempting to say, well, of course, female doctors, blah, 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 blah. But actually, I think the first thing you need to do when you go to a doctor is research, a new doctor, is research and find out, be sure they're competent, see where they did their training, see where they got their education, where did they do their residency or their internship, what's the quality of the hospital, et cetera. And the second thing I think you need to do is find somebody with whom you're comfortable. I don't think it's a gender issue. It's a competency issue and a comfort issue. And that can depend on you and the particular individuals involved. I have a male doctor that always asks how I'm doing, and I have a female doctor that never does. And usually they say, oh, we'll go to a female doctor. They'll talk to you more. Well, it depends on the doctor. And I think that that's very important. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm lucky with my doctor because even though I begrudgingly went from a PPO to an HMO, it was a saving, such a significant savings that I just had to. But she is one of the most thoughtful doctors I've ever had. She really listens and doesn't make me feel rushed with the kids or with her. And so my husband sees the same doctor, my kids are seeing the same doctor, and I just think that's great. So if you find that, then hold on to it until you have to let go. The previous doctor I had to let go of because Facebook made her an offer. She couldn't refuse. And <laughs> okay. I couldn't believe it. They have doctors on campus there because they want to keep you there. Like, Yeah, I didn't know that either, actually. That's interesting. I don't blame them. Yeah, just um, having to go from working five days a week in a private practice to only working three and getting more money. I mean, <laughs> so. Let's see, right? that's like sore thumb, brain bleed, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's a topic I'm passionate about, obviously, and everybody needs to care about their health, but there is a tremendous social impact to women putting their health second. And you know what? This is one thing we all need to be selfish about. So pick up a copy of Sidelined. And I can also just say that you can find out more about Susan Salinger at susansalinger.com. Right. It's S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R. That's great. So I will include links to that in show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today, Susan. This has been awesome. Thank you for having me. 
As always, I'll be sure to include links to the items we discussed today in show notes, which includes a direct link to Sidelined the book, as well as to susanzellinger.com, spelled S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R.com. I hope you'll share this podcast with members of your community, your family, and friends. You could forward the link to this specific episode, or even just grab their phone. Go ahead and subscribe to the show for them and download this specific episode. I know that's what I have to do when I'm with my parents and I want them to hear something because they're a little less tech savvy than some. Now, if you haven't already, I hope you'll write us a review. We want to hear from you. And this will also help us climb the charts and reach more people. You can even leave us a voicemail directly on our website, caremorebebetter.com. Lean into discovery, stay curious, ask questions and get involved. Thank you, listeners, now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even regenerate Earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.